There's a story about an older gentleman uh, who had a, a serious hearing problem for over 10 years. So he finally went to the doctor and he was fitted with a new set of hearing aids. Um, and he could hear perfectly. On his follow-up visit a month later, the doctor said, your hearing is now at 100%. Your family must be really pleased that you can hear again. To which the man replied, I haven't told the family yet. I just sit around and listen to their conversations and I've changed my will three times in the last month. Well, as we come to the, this last lesson in Malachi chapter 3, it's helpful to think of God as eavesdropping on some of our conversations. He is listening in as two groups of people are talking. The first group is speaking against him and the other group in admiration of God. Uh, group one looked around and all they could do was complain. Group two looked up and comprehended, and God heard it all. So I want to start today with group one who looked around and complained. Hear the words of Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 13, um, and I share from the message translation. God says, you have spoken hard, rude words to me. You ask, when did we ever do that? When you said it doesn't pay to serve God. What do we ever get out of it? When you did what he said and went around with long faces, serious about God of the angel armies, what difference did it make? Those who take life into their own hands are the lucky ones. They break all the rules and get ahead anyway. They push God to the limit and they get by with it. Now these people were lodging three major complaints against God. And the first complaint against God is that they've done nothing wrong. Look at verse 13. You have, you have said terrible things about me, says the Lord God Almighty. God is saying that his people have been openly obstinate. God is saying that they, they have said horrible things about him. And once again, for the seventh and final time in this book, the people denied that they had a problem. But you say, what do you mean? What have we said against you? So as God eavesdrops, notice that he doesn't say that the people are saying strong words to him. He's saying they are saying things against him. The form of the verb said means to speak to one another in a conversation. They were talking to each other. They were gathering around the water cooler and in the parking lot and you know how it goes. Gossiping, talking about each other. About, uh, to each other about all their complaints against God. And yet when they're confronted with it, they're quick to deny that they've done anything wrong. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to find people who will agree with our complaints? We're attracted to people who are sympathetic to our feelings, aren't we? Or as someone once told me, negative people attract negative people. Even more so, when we grumble against God, we want others to be grumbling with us. In verse 14, God tells them in no uncertain terms what their second complaint is. They see no benefit in serving God. 
you have said, what's the use in serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or trying to show the Lord of heaven's armies that we're sorry for our sins? You see, when God dealt with their denial, it had to be very disarming. They must have thought God could hear what they were saying. They were basically saying that worshiping, or they thought God could not hear them, but because they were complaining and saying that worshiping and tithing and serving God had no purpose. It was all empty. It was useless. It was meaningless. And the word prophet that's used in this text is a technical term used for a weaver who cuts a piece of cloth free from the loom. And here it has a negative connotation of someone who's expecting his or her cut. It reveals that these people had a consumer mentality. And here's what they're really saying. What will I get out of this? If I worship and serve and give, what am I going to get out of it? What's in it for me? See, these murmurs are complaining because even when they appeared sorrowful before the Lord, it had no benefit. They kept all the outward appearances of the law and wondered why things weren't going better for them. Their thoughts were very similar to what we read in Isaiah chapter 58. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed, God? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. You see, even when they were involved in ministry, it didn't seem to matter. They were echoing the sentiment we find in Job 21, 15. Who is the Almighty, and why should we obey him? What good will it do us to pray? See, the same complaint still rears its ugly head in our hearts today, doesn't it? Some of us have stopped serving God. Some of us have stopped being very active in the life of the church because we don't see how we get any benefit from that. Or maybe you've been trying to do the right thing, but it just seems pointless to keep it up. But here's the message of God's word. Don't bail on your duty. Keep it up. Don't lose heart. The Lord's work is definitely worth it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the Apostle Paul says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong, be immovable, always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I wonder if you and I have made serving more difficult than it needs to be. God has designed us to be involved in his purposes Ministry doesn't have to hurt. It's not painful. In fact, when we're serving and using our spiritual gifts, it can be extremely satisfying because that's what God has designed us to do. You and I were put on this earth to make a contribution, and we are saved in order to serve. We are healed in order to help. We are blessed in order to be a blessing. God has a ministry for us in his church. He has a mission for us in the world. And having said that, some of us are more interested in, how is serving going to help me? Serving goes against our natural inclination that puts us, puts ourselves at at the forefront. Let me give you a summary of the significance of serving God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. I think it may have been Rick Warren, pastor at Saddleback Church in Southern California, who came up for this simple acrostic 
S-H-A-P-E, shape, to help us remember five factors about serving. First, S, spiritual gifts. God has empowered each of us with abilities for serving, and they are gifts only given to believers and for the upbuilding of the church and the kingdom of God. H, heart, that which motivates us, that which we care about the most. Abilities, A, natural talents that we're all born with. P, personality affects how and where we use our spiritual gifts and experience. What we've gone through in the past prepares us for ministry today. That's our shape. In his autobiography, uh, Warren Wearsby writes this. He said, if life is to have meaning and if God's will is to be done, all of us have to accept who we are and what we are. And then we have to give it back to God and thank him for the way that he's made us. What I am is God's gift to me. What I do with it is my gift to him. Ministry is anything but futile. And we can be fruitful and fulfilled when we serve according to our shape. If you're not serving, you don't know what you're missing. So I encourage you to plug into a place of service here in this church that is designed just for you. And then third, the people's third grievance was that in their minds, God wasn't being fair. Look at verse 15. From now on, we will call the arrogant blessed. For those who do evil seem to get rich, and those who dare God to punish them suffer no harm. See, as they looked around them, what they saw was a bunch of proud, arrogant people who were prospering. And they didn't like that one little bit. They wonder why evil people evaded trouble while those who are serving God seem to get the short end of the stick. And before we get too tough on them for railing against God's justice, don't we do the same thing sometimes? You see, this complaint is very similar to the writer's concerns in Psalm 73, which tells us uh, that this writer of the psalm almost went spiritually AWOL, is where he's laying it all out for us. He said, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. The word proud comes from a root word that means a loud and clear noise. It's also used to describe the braying of a donkey. Notice that Asaph, the psalm writer, was not upset with the arrogant or the wicked. He's jealous of them. He wants what they have. The word prosperity doesn't do justice to the original term, shalom, which means completion, fulfillment, wholeness, peace, harmony. Why should the wicked have everything when that's what's promised to God's covenant people? God isn't being fair to us, they're basically saying. Since God has forgotten us, well, we'll just forget him. In verse 4 and 5, the psalmist wonders why life is, seems so good for those who have nothing to do with God. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everybody else. They live in the fast lane, but they don't seem to crash and burn. Their life appears painless and easy. See, here again, when we deny that we do or say anything wrong, we eventually stop serving God. And when we disengage from God's purpose for our life, we will inevitably, inevitably end up questioning the very justice of God. 
I'm thankful that God, though, always has a remnant of people, and even though there are those who are saying harsh things against him, there, there were another group of people who were speaking about his holiness. And so if you see a little bit of yourself in maybe that first group, hang on, because I encourage you to join the conversation of group two. Group two looked up and comprehended. Let me follow along, uh, or follow along as I read from this final section of Math, or Malachi chapter three, and again from the message translation. Then those whose lives honored God got together and talked it over. God saw what they were doing and he listened in. A book was opened in God's presence and minutes were taken of the meeting with the names of the God-fearers written down, all the names of those who honored God's name. God of the angel army said, they are mine, all mine. They'll get special treatment when I go into action. I treat them with the same consideration and kindness that parents give the child who honors them. Once more, you'll see the difference it makes between being a person who does the right thing and one who doesn't, between serving God and not serving him. Here we see two elements, key elements, that make up this group of committed believers. It talks about their character, they exalted God, and their conduct. They edified each other. So let's look first at their character as described in the beginning of verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with each other, and the Lord listened to what they said. In his presence, a scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name. This word, to fear the Lord, the word fear has always uh, been questioned by God's people but it simply means to hold him in respect, to hold God in awe of who he is. The fear of the Lord is to tremble uh, at the thought of offending him in any way. He is not to be trifled with. The Bible says he is a consuming fire. So instead of laying some awful charge against the Almighty, they are de- this group of people are declaring God to be awesome. 1 Samuel 12, 24 says, Be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve him. Think of all the wonderful things he has done for you. While God invites us to call him our friend, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that he is to be respected. A.W. Tozer said that to know God is to fear him and to be stunned in in the splendor of his presence. God is not there just to meet our needs. We are here to bow before his supremacy in an attitude of holy fear so that we will worship him with our actions and our words. We hear the longing of God in Deuteronomy 5.29. Oh, that they would always have their hearts like this, that they might fear me and obey my commands. And if they did, they and all their descendants would prosper forever. So instead of thinking of the fear of the Lord as God uh, is gonna do something that's gonna hurt us, a better suggestion is, to, is the fear that we might do something to hurt him by our behavior. That we will often run away from him to seek refuge, to seek joy, to seek hope in other things. The word fear can refer to reverence, to respect, but I wonder if that definition even goes far enough. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 in the New Testament challenges us to work hard, to show the results of our salvation, obeying 
God with deep reverence and fear. Most of us could stand to have a little more respect in the presence of God, couldn't we? He is not just the big guy up in the sky or the man upstairs. We hear those phrases, don't we? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the most high God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the almighty. He is the holy one. This remnant in Malachi chapter 3 was in tune with the character of God and their conduct was such that instead of leveling charges against him, they got together and they supported each other and they encouraged each other and they met to, uh, to, just to talk about what God had been doing in their, among them. Psalm 66, 16 says, Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. They shared with each other. They opened up. They encouraged each other. They confessed their sins to one another. They cried. They prayed. In short, they experienced a biblically functioning community. Those who are spiritually alive will seek other people out who have a similar commitment um, with whom they can fellowship. Let me give you an action step for this week. In the course of some conversation this week, try interjecting the name of God and looking for some way to build up another person's faith. Do you have friends who will do that for you? When you get together with your friends, with the people that you hang out with, do you, do you ever come away with a deeper reverence for God because they have built you up spiritually? Proverbs 13.20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools and get in trouble. If you don't have a group of godly influencers, I encourage you to plug in to a life group, to a Bible study, to a group of people who can encourage and support you. And if you're always around people who have no use for God and spend most of your time complaining about people and complaining about God and how life isn't fair, then it's very easy to eventually become indifferent to spiritual matters. It's imperative that we have people in our life who will build us up, not tear us down. And as we've been learning from this book of Malachi, each of us, if we're not careful, we are prone to wander a bit from God. We tend to slide south spiritually if we're not consciously looking for ways to step it up a level. We must take responsibility to help each other stay focused on God and enable uh, each other to, 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 keep, to turn from temptation. Hebrews 3.13 reminds us that we are each other's keeper. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. If we try to do the Christian life solo, sin will always harden us and deceive us. We need each other. And that's why God is so sold on Christ followers making a commitment to the community of faith, to worship. In Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So once again, we, we learn how to exalt God and encourage each other, and then we begin to comprehend the five aspects of God's character. 
they can be found in these verses, Malachi 3, 16 and 17. Let me give them to you quickly. The first aspect of God's character is that the Lord listens to us. The Lord listened to what they said. Isn't it, isn't it tough to keep talking when you sense that another person really isn't listening to you? But here it says the Lord locks in on us. He listens when his people honor him. The word listen means he picks up his ears. It has the idea of God leaning forward so that he can take in everything that's being said about him. Psalm 34, 15 reminds us that God's ears are always attentive to the cry of the righteous. And when we turn to God, he tunes in to our frequency. Some of us don't want God hearing what we say because we might be embarrassed what comes out of our mouth. But instead, we focus on, if we focus on honoring him, uh, he leans in. He leans forward to hear us and to respond to our needs. Psalm 34, 9 promises that those who fear the Lord will have all that they need. So let's invite God into our conversations. Let's fill our words uh, uh, with praise, with worship. Secondly, the character of God is that Lord remembers us. A scroll of remembrance was written to record the names of those who feared him and always thought about the honor of his name. The idea of God keeping a written record appears as early as the book of Exodus. Perhaps the most beautiful expression of this is in Isaiah 49, 16, where God says, See, I know you. You are mine. I have your name written on the palm of my hand. A scroll of remembrance is a wonderful picture, uh, figure taken from the culture of that day because kings kept a register of everyone who was loyal to the king or to the throne. In the book of Esther, we read this great story about King Xerxes who had a sleepless night one night, so he called for the book, the register book of, uh, of records and discovered that a man by the name of Mordecai had delivered him uh, from a coup attempt and had never been re, uh, rewarded for it. And when he saw Mordecai's name, it reminded him that he needed to compensate Mordecai for his commitment to the king. Actually, we know God doesn't need a, uh, to look in a book to remember us. The only thing he forgets about us is our sin. But he does keep a book of the names who have put, of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. They are forever etched in the Lamb's book of life as viewed by John, the apostle, in Revelation chapter 20. Here's the third character of God. The Lord claims us. They will be my people, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The word mine is an emphatic word. Those who fear God belong to him. And I love the tenderness that comes uh, in, from uh, these words in Jeremiah 32. They will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one purpose to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy in doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in this land. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you no longer belong to you. If you have made a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. You have a different owner now. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. 
So you must honor God with your body. Here's the fourth characteristic. The Lord treasures us. On the day when I act in judgment, uh, they will be my own special treasure. We are a valued treasure. God treasures us. He is crazy about us. No matter, uh, we matter to him far more than we'll ever know. Listen to the love that God has for you. It's recorded in an Old Testament book of Zephaniah. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all of your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful song. And then here's the last one. The Lord spares us. I will spare them as a father spares an obedient child. And then you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Because God listens to us and remembers us and claims us and treasures us, he promises to spare our life. Because God is just, we deserve justice, but because he is merciful, we don't get what we deserve. In fact, we receive much more than we deserve. It's called grace. And as we wrap up this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. Which of these two groups are you in? Are you looking around and, and uh, what's going on in your life is complaining, gossiping, missing out on what God has promised and what God gives you? Or are you one of those in the other group looking up and comprehending and respecting and honoring and worshiping God? See, as God eavesdrops on our life, he makes a distinction between those who know him and those who don't. And the Bible makes it clear that there is no middle ground. We are either saved or we're lost. We're either alive in Christ or we're dead in our sins. We're in the light or we're in the darkness. We're in the kingdom of his son or the kingdom of Satan. On the, we are on the road to an eternity with God or on another road away from the presence of God. And if you're not sure today which group you're in, let me encourage you to just stop living in denial and recognize that serving God is the only thing that really matters in this life and come to grips with the fact that God is fair in all of his dealings with us. And it's time to look up and to comprehend that. Comprehend that the Lord listens to us and he remembers us and he claims us and he treasures us and he's gonna, he wants to spare us. God has done so much for us. We need to respond to that, his grace and his mercy in order to activate it in our life. We need to allow God's kindness to move us to repentance. So I'm inviting you to commit your life. If you've never done that, I'm inviting you to commit yourself to, to God today and publicly acknowledge that from this point on, you're gonna serve the Lord. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer this morning, and if what I pray reflects what's in your heart, I invite you to pray along with me silently. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I can no longer deny that often I am not doing what I should do. I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm not always serving uh, you but myself. I do believe that you paid the price for my sins and that you listen and remember and claim and treasure me and now I want you to spare me. So I turn from the way I've been living and invite you to come into my life. 
Today I receive you as my Savior and my Lord, my forgiver, my leader. And if there's anything in my life that you don't like, get rid of it. And help me to exalt you and edify those around me as I serve you to the end. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.